The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am honored today to welcome my guest, Dr. Tyrone Hayes. He is a biologist and professor of integrative biology at the University of California at Berkeley. He is most known for his research on atrazine, Syngenta's herbicide that poses a health threat to wildlife and humans, and he has become an advocate for the critical review and regulation of pesticides. His research was used to reach a $105 million settlement in a class action suit brought by 15 Illinois water providers against Syngenta to pay the cost of filtering atrazine from their drinking water. I have had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Hayes speak both at the University of Missouri and also at the Beyond Pesticides Annual Forum in Orlando, Florida in 2015, where he gave a rousing closing keynote titled, Learning from an Environmental Tragedy. Atrazine is typically used on corn, sorghum, and sugarcane, and it threatens the water quality, water being our most important nutrient in the Midwest and beyond. Dr. Hayes holds an undergraduate degree in biology from Harvard University and a Ph.D. in integrative biology from the University of California at Berkeley, where he currently serves as a professor. Welcome, Dr. Hayes. My pleasure to be here. Tell me about your research on atrazine. How did you start looking at that particular compound, and why did you start with frogs? Well, that's certainly an interesting question. I've always been interested in frogs since I was a little kid and in biology and in life and interested in how frogs integrate their physiology and development with environment and environmental changes. I'm particularly interested in the role of hormones and how they direct reproduction and reproductive development. And Early in my career, a little over 20 years ago, I realized that some of the most important environmental factors that regulate reproductive development and physiology are chemicals that we create that interfere with processes that have evolved over millions of years that we're now short-circuiting, so to speak. And I was recognized early on in my work for this, and the manufacturer, which was then Novartis, hired me to study whether or not atrazine was an endocrine disruptor interfere with hormone action in frogs, and that was when I was a, early in my professorship at UC Berkeley. I'd never heard of atrazine, so really, I guess the phrase shot themselves in the foot comes to mind. It was really Novartis that the manufacturer that turned me on to atrazine. Uh-huh. And what did you find? We found initially that frogs, tadpoles that were exposed to atrazine, developed with a larynx or a voice box that was insufficient for a male. So just like in humans where testosterone makes the voice box grow different, but the reason that men have deeper voices than women. The same thing's true in frogs. Males sing to attract females, and females don't because of testosterone. So our initial data suggested that the male hormone testosterone was somehow decreased in these frogs, and so they didn't develop properly. This was reported to the company, and through various behaviors that I didn't approve of, I left the company and subsequently discovered that the reason that their testosterone was low was that the atrazine had actually converted a significant number of males into females by causing these 
genetic males to produce estrogen, and they were thereby both demasculized and feminized. And the response from Novartis to your research? Well, I was part of a team that was sort of organized by this group called EcoRisk, which doesn't exist anymore. And it was a group of academics of other professors that worked under contract for Novartis. And their initial response was to suggest that we repeat the experiment, that we reanalyze things, which is appropriate for any scientific research, um, which we did. And unfortunately, we did it too fast. So they started pulling back funds to, you know, try to slow the lab down. And then after that, they hired a statistician to try to prove that we had done something wrong or made some error. They suggested that I manipulate the data in ways that I showed them was was inappropriate. And, And eventually, I left the contract. And then they hired other scientists to produce really poorly conducted studies to try to show that we had done something wrong and that our studies weren't valid. And then eventually it led to both professional and personal attacks on me, including one individual from the company, which then became Syngenta, one individual threatening me and my family with violence and sexual violence and making lewd comments and all kinds of things like that. So it really sort of grew out of hand. But your research is solid, so solid, in fact, that it was used to successfully sue Syngenta to make them clean up water contaminated by atrazine. So somewhere along the line, you must have proven yourself to do quality research and to show true harm linked to atrazine. Yeah, research is solid being that, you know, I'll give some credit to Novartis and Genta. I mean, they had really strict rules about, you know, how we collected samples and how we kept records. It really did, I will to their credit, it improved the way that we collected data and the way that we ran the lab because we really had to back everything up beyond just what any normal academic scientist would have to do. Mm. Our work was published in some of the top, most critical journals in the world, Nature, Proceedings in National Academy of Sciences, and not only did we have to undergo peer review, we had to undergo all the scrutiny of the company who hired scientists and experts who we now know from their notes that, you know, became available after the lawsuit you know, they hired people to actually try to get our work retracted, and we withstood that. They hired people to try to get me fired from the university, and we were able to, under all of that scrutiny, the work is still there, we're still working, we're still publishing. You know, I often tell people that I'm much, you know, there's an expression, that which doesn't destroy you makes you stronger. Right. I often tell people I've been tested by the best. I have no <laughs> fear of the rest, so the rest of them can bring it. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I, I want to talk a little bit about research on frogs, because I think, Many times we hear about research that's done, say, on mice or rats, frogs, fish, alligators, and we think, well, that's a totally different species. What happens to them can't possibly affect us. We're larger. We're more sophisticated. And yet you make a really important point in that our biological systems are very similar. And so we can indeed say that if there's a risk to frogs, we should be concerned about the risk to humans. Yeah, there's several things I would say about that. One is what atrazine does is atrazine increases the production of estrogen in frogs. Okay? And the first level of concern for me is that we should be concerned about the frogs. That right. if it's affecting frogs in the environment, then frogs are connected to I can make all kinds of connections, right? Like frogs eat mosquitoes. Yes. Mosquitoes carry things like malaria and Zika. So even if it were just frogs that were affected, you know, frogs are eating bot flies, frogs are eating 
mosquitoes that carry malaria and Zika and yellow fever. Frogs are critical in the environment. So even if it was just frogs, I would say that should be a concern. Right. Beyond that, I would say if it were just frogs, that their role in ecosystems is important. And so once you lose the frogs, you'll lose all sorts of other animals. Beyond that, I would say if it's affecting frogs, which live in the water, which is the same water that we drink and depend on, then we should be concerned. And the point that you make is also very important, that frogs make estrogen and use estrogen, the exact same molecule that fish and reptiles and birds and mammals, every vertebrate animal, estrogen is important. You could not be a species without female because you need to reproduce. And you could not be a female without estrogen. The word estrogen literally means the generator of estrus. So if you're messing around with how you generate estrogen in frogs, it's likely that it's messing around with it in every animal. And we now know, you know, Syngenta on their website focuses on me and my work and who's replicated my work. But studies all over the world, I published a paper with 22 scientists from 12 different countries that have shown that atrazine affects estrogen production and androgen production, testosterone production, and everything from fish to amphibians to reptiles to birds to rodents, and even an indication that it does so in, in humans. So if it's doing it in frogs, it's doing it in everything because frogs use the same hormones and make the same hormones the same way that we do. The experiments that have been done are important because you can't do experiments in humans. Right. And if atrazine is doing the same thing in 22 different labs from 12 different countries, and that's just a subset of the data that are now available, if it's doing the same thing independently in all of those labs and all of those different animals, we're just another animal. How can we possibly think that somehow we're removed, let alone from rats, which are mammals just like us, but from everything else that's using the same hormones that we use? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was at my local farmer's market, and one of the farmers was advertising eggs that he produced from chickens that were not fed GMO grain. And I thought, wonderful, you know, there's that level of herbicide that isn't going to be present. And when I asked him if he sprayed his grain, he was feeding sorghum or milo. And when I asked him what he sprayed on his crop, he said he uses atrazine. And he was there with his sons, and I said, oh, that's really a dangerous herbicide. And he said, oh, no, the EPA says it's fine. Let's talk a little bit about the role of EPA or the Environmental Protection Agency and its role in protecting public health and this notion that many of us have that if it's approved or registered by the EPA, it must somehow be safe. If it's sold in the hardware store, the product somehow must be safe. If it's on the supermarket shelf and so forth. Tell me a little bit about EPA's role and where they stand with regard to atrazine. Well, one, I've looked at this website that Syngenta puts up, and one, (laughs) they need to update their website because the EPA has just issued a report after all these years. I could have told them this 20 years ago, but the EPA has just issued a report describing atrazine as an endocrine disruptor that is dangerous to amphibians, reptiles, fish, plants, etc. And the state of California under Prop 65 has just issued a report naming atrazine as a reproductive and developmental toxin that can lead to birth defects and negative effects in exposed women. So they need to update their website. The EPA's decision early on, you know, 20 years ago when this started, was a little tainted because they had members on their panel that actually were employed by Syngenta. So this guy, Klaus Werner, who 
was on the EPA panel, was being paid by Syngenta. That's problematic. That's a clear conflict of interest. And the EPA now, in a recent article in The New Yorker, have just acknowledged that atrazine does negative things. But they made this statement that a price tag is put on impairments and shortness of life and weight against the economic benefits. So you think when you have a name like the Environmental Protection Agency, you think that like, oh, they're thinking just about the environment, but they're considering into this equation money and economics. And they've stated this. They've stated this in New Yorker magazine. They said that this price tag of the cost of getting rid of a chemical is weighed in. Mm-hmm. You know, so just because a chemical's on the market doesn't mean it's safe. And the same thing is true for drugs or pharmaceuticals, right? Any drug or pharmaceutical or food additive, they'll give you a list of potential adverse effects. So, mm-hmm. so it's all relative. So just because something's on the market um, and just because something's been approved, even if it has been approved by EPA, doesn't mean that's quote-unquote safe. Yeah. And I think that's a really important message that we as citizens of this country need to understand, that our safety screening or our agencies that we trust to protect us are not using the precautionary principle. They are factoring in economics and profit from corporations that influence the laws that are set out to protect us. Yeah, and I will, you know, just to clarify, I have a direct quote. This is from the EPA that was published in New Yorker magazine. The EPA spokesperson said, quote, a monetary value is assigned to disease, impairments, and shortened lives, and weighed against the benefits of keeping a chemical in use. That's what they said about atrazine. So they're not saying it's safe. They're saying a monetary value is assigned to disease, impairments, and shortened lives and weighed against the benefits of keeping a chemical in use. That's a quote. Hmm. And, and what we know is that the monetary value, the people who benefit from that chemical, Novartis and its employees and its scientists apparently, is different from the people who are being exposed. And I'm not even talking about you and I and, you know, and the farmer's market. That's a concern. I'm talking about the front line, the people in the factories who are making this chemical. Those That's are the people right. who are most at risk. The farmers who are spraying this stuff and being exposed to it, the farm workers, I should say, those are the people who are most at risk. Those are the people who have very little political power, very little financial power. They're the ones who are paying the cost for that monetary value that the EPA is talking about. Exactly. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined today by Dr. Tyrone Hayes, biologist and professor of integrative biology at the University of California at Berkeley, known most for his work on atrazine. You raise a really great point, and that is a subject that needs much more public attention, and that really revolves around these issues of environmental racism and the consequences of atrazine and other herbicides that are used in agriculture but are disproportionately affected by populations of African Americans and Hispanics who are more likely to live and work in those low-income areas where they may be exposed. Exactly. I mean, in California, which has the fifth or seventh, depends on you talk to, largest economy, it's an agricultural-based economy. 90% of the workers are Hispanic and have very little voice and very little financial capability to respond or defend themselves against chemicals that are leading to the health disparities. I was introduced to the term environmental justice by uh, Keith Ellison, a congressperson in Minnesota who's now in the U.S. Congress, U.S. House of Representatives, and it wasn't something I've ever thought about. You know, I describe myself as a little boy who likes frogs. I was really just interested in the frogs. And now I think very broadly about the higher incidence of diabetes and of 13 out of 13 cancers. If you're a minority, you're more likely to die from. 
those aren't likely genetic. Right. As you said, it's because if you're a minority, you're more likely to live in and more likely to work in areas where you're exposed to chemicals that we know are associated with adverse health outcomes. And that's become a very big concern and driving point for me now. Right. I agree with you. And I think that those of us who work in the field of food and nutrition, those dietitians, for example, who are in charge of purchasing food for large institutions, and those of us who work with the media really have a responsibility to consider all lives. You know, all lives matter here. And no one should be considered expendable or, or more exploitable than someone else. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And again, it's not something I ever thought about. Again, I'll give props to Novartis and Genta for making me think more broadly about my science and its significance and its importance. Exactly. One of the things that you did at the Beyond Pesticides Forum that was really moving was that you drew upon historical literature to describe the sounds around a body of water in California. And then, for those of us in the audience, you went to that same spot geographically and you held a tape recorder to hear silence. So the music of wildlife that had been described many years ago in our literature, you went back and took the time to think, what does it sound like now? So that reflects back to your earlier statement about how these small creatures that perhaps we take for granted play a very significant role in our ecosystem, even if we don't understand them fully, and that we have to reflect back to how things were and how they might be for our children's children in the future. Yeah, I I think that audio and a lot of the visuals that I use, because for me, those are the things that affect me. When you're talking about, for example, whether it's a scientific audience or a general audience, if you're talking about, you know, these tiny, tiny molecules and tiny, tiny amounts, you can't really visualize that. So I like to use visuals of the deformities, for example, that are attributed to atrazine in both amphibians and humans. And, and that sound you're talking about, that record was a piece from Steinbeck's East of Eden that described, I'll just read a, a small piece of it, Salinas, he wrote, was surrounded and penetrated with swamps and tool-filled ponds, and every pond spawned thousands of frogs. And he goes on about, in their millions, how the frog song had a beat and a cadence and how it was a part of that environment, and that's gone. You know, the, the lecture that I give, I often call from silent spring to silent night, and I use that analogy in my title because Rachel Carson talked about silent spring and the death of birds and the role that pesticides were playing and how the silence of the birds was a warning to us, ironically, right, that the, that the silence was a warning, not the sound. And for listeners who don't know, 70% of all amphibians globally are in decline or in threat of going extinct. And this is a group of animals that survived the mass extinction that took out the dinosaurs. And now we, we are wiping them out, whether we're talking about the role of climate change or habitat loss or the chemicals that we put in the environment. The causes, the multiple causes are us, humans. A single species is now responsible for the next mass extinction. Not a meteorite, you know, not, you know, that, or some naturally occurring event that, that globally changed the earth, but a single species. And if the frogs, our new canaries in the coal mine are going, and so are we. And that's a very powerful image for me, that, that a literary artist in 1952, that John Steinbeck in 1952, wrote about 
the frogs and how deafening it was that there were so many frogs calling. And now I can go to that same area, an area where 85% of the country's lettuce comes from this, from this river that John Steinbeck wrote about. And we're using a huge amount of pesticides, probably more concentration of pesticides than anywhere else in the U.S. Mm. And it's completely wiped out this thing that this literary artist wrote about in 1952, which, by the way, atrazine and many of the other chemicals we're talking about were introduced into the area in 1958. In a very short time, we've eliminated, we've so much altered through habitat loss and climate change and introduction of pesticides and introduced species. We've lost all of that natural beauty, all of that sound. Right. And for new generations, unless they hear lectures like yours and read those accounts, we don't know what we're missing. No. One of the other most disturbing things for me is I became a biologist very early in my life because I grew up in an area that ironically was a low-income area, all African-American community. that was built on a swamp land that they filled up, and so the my yard, my neighborhood would flood when the rains come and there'd be snakes and frogs going through the and turtles in my yard. And I remember twice a year the birds flying north and then south. The sky would be dark with birds. That's what made me a biologist. Yeah. And, um, you know, I still go back there now and that's gone. Everything's oh. paved over. Agriculture's taken over. The swamp that I played in as a kid, which is now a national park, is contaminated with ethanyl estradiol, birth control pill, from leaky sewage septic tanks from the low-income community that lives around the park, and atrazine. Mm. So these chemicals don't recognize that boundary. So even the areas that we're trying to protect, so that our kids will, you know, maybe they won't see it in their backyard, but they'll have a place to go and see it. But even that now is under threat because climate change, or, you know, maybe the habitat loss won't impact it, but climate change and the Mm. chemical contaminants don't recognize the borders of the only national park in South Carolina. Exactly. I was really troubled by an event that Mizzou, that's the name that is given to the University of Missouri, there was an events calendar, and an event was publicized called Syngenta Day. And the event was going to bring students out to a building, and they were going to learn about, and I'll just quote this, take this opportunity to see how Syngenta is feeding the world, and you'll gain at this event a better understanding of Syngenta and career opportunities and so on. Oh, and they were going to have a free meal, which is always popular with the student population, (laughs) right? And so I expressed some interest in attending the event as a journalist. I wanted to write about what the students were learning and, more importantly, what might be missing. And I was told that uh, media was not welcome, which is a concern for me because I think that in order to live in a democracy, we need a fully informed public. But my query was sent to the head of communications for Syngenta, and I received a message from him along with a link where I could learn more from the Syngenta website. And this brings me to my point of the difficulty that we have in figuring out the science. So you mentioned, for example, the EPA's report, and it says right here, well, the EPA's draft ecological report on atrazine scientifically unjustified. How, right? I mean, this is what we're faced with. And there's a very lovely image of a mother with with a little girl. I'm assuming it's it's her child. And knowing what you present about estrogen, and of course that increases risk for breast cancer, birth defects, and so on, I look at that picture. I read that the EPA's report is 
somehow scientifically wrong. I read that each year, Syngenta supports 85,000 American jobs, saving U.S. consumers up to $4.8 billion due to decreased input costs and increased production, and that, of course, atrazine plays a significant role in feeding the world. You're a scientist. Help me, as an educator and communicator, make sense of this scientific conflict that I don't know how to interpret for the average consumer. Oh, there's there's so much that I could respond to there. I mean, one, I would say, consider the history. So when the EPA, which had people hired by Syngenta on the panel, was not supporting the work that, that the research showing that atrazine causes adverse effects, Syngenta was all about the EPA. They were quoting the EPA and citing the EPA all over the place. Now all of a sudden they say, oh, this is scientifically unjustified. Mm. Right? So they're going to go with whatever is working for them. They're not really being objective. That's the first part of your problem. The other issue is this idea of Syngenta feeding the world. Syngenta and atrazine have nothing to do with feeding the world. Atrazine increases corn yield, according to some studies, by 1.2%. We eat less than 2% of the corn that we grow, while 20% of the world dies of starvation because they don't have access to staples. This is not about feeding the world. This is about Syngenta making money. Right. This is about, you know, when I my issue with GMOs. GMOs often come up. My issue about GMO is not the technology. My issue is that when I was a freshman at Harvard and GMO, genetically engineered, genetically modified organisms, was first becoming a thing, it was about we're going to develop frost-resistant strawberries. We're going to develop drought-resistant wheat. 90% of the GMO products that are produced now, plants, are for herbicide resistance. It's not about growing more or making more. It's about making the farmer dependent on chemicals. It's about selling more chemical. And the problem is that 90% of the seeds we use to grow food are owned by six chemical companies, Syngenta being one of those. Mm. But there's a huge conflict of interest. And if the California and the United States is an agricultural-based economy and agriculture depends on seeds and the seeds are owned, 90% of them, by chemical companies, that means that this country is run by those six chemical companies, some of which aren't even based in the U.S. And when the first presidential caucus is in Iowa, a corn-growing state, there's no way you're going to have a president who goes to Iowa and says, yes, I'm going to appoint somebody head of the EPA that's going to regulate the chemicals that are used on the crop that is responsible for the economics of the state. So, you know, I'm not one to go all into conspiracies, but we're held hostage. And when you have the same companies like Novartis in 2000, the same companies that own the pesticides are also producing the pharmaceuticals. When you have the same company as the year 2000, Novartis was producing atrazine, which induces estrogen production and is associated with breast cancer. That same company was selling a chemical called letrozole, which is the number one treatment for breast cancer, that reduced estrogen production. So when you have a chemical company that's in charge of, not even a U.S.-based company, that's in charge of growing our food and producing our pharmaceuticals and owns a significant portion of our seeds and can genetically modify seeds to make you dependent on that chemical, then we're in trouble. Yes, we are. We're going to have to leave it at that. I will provide links to your work so that our listeners can learn more. I want to thank you Dr. Hayes, so much for being my guest. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Dr. Tyrone Hayes, biologist and professor of integrative biology at the University of California at Berkeley, known for his research on atrazine. Thank you so much again. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.